By being racing driver means you are racing with other people. And if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you're no longer a racing driver. Oh, sweet man. Oh, well, thanks for coming on and doing this, man. It was nice to um, catch up with you on Australia Day and have a beer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was great. It's uh, a bit fortuitous that uh, I ended up over there while training, but um, made the most of it, getting out to see John at Racecraft and catch up with you as well. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, I hadn't actually met John yet. I, one of those things I've been meaning to get around to, as I said, and I just... Um, yeah, it was a good opportunity. So, yeah, it was nice to catch up, man. So, um, yeah, so basically what I want to just go through is uh, obviously you've been racing um, bees um, and I sort of, I'm doing a little series here for the Aussie Car Podcast just on entry-level motorsport. Um, yep. So just trying to keep them sort of short and sweet as well because, you know, people's attention spans are like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but, yeah, so I thought you would be the man um, to talk to I was like, oh, I know someone who races these. So, um, and obviously, uh, we race each other with the Aussie Car F4s every week or every fortnight. Yeah. So, yeah, I wanted if you could tell us a bit about um, these, man. And what all I, all I really sort of want to do is we'll go through cars, then we'll do motors, tyres, transport, ongoing costs, that kind of yep. stuff. So, starting with cars, can you give us a rough idea, sort of, um, like what's a bunky cost, what's a good car, and what's a kind of like top of the wazza go for these days? Yeah, well, there's um, first of all, there's basically three categories in Australia um, that all come under Formula V, and it depends on what sort of engine or when your car was built. So there's historic, which is the the cars built back in the 60s and 70s yep. um, and the early 80s, and they all run 1,200 engines, and they run uh, drum brakes, and run under a slightly different set of regulations to the more modern cars. Uh, the modern cars then break into two categories of 1,200 or 1,600, depending on what engine you're running. Uh, once you get into the uh, modern cars, you're allowed to run drum brake, uh, sorry, disc brakes. Um, and uh, once you get past a car that was built in about the early 2000s, you're also... Um, start to see cars where the suspension becomes inboard instead of using the uh, original suspension points on the H-beam on the front of the Formula V, which is iconic with the, the category as one of the um, yeah. one-make parts from the Volkswagen that must be used in the, in the car. Um, so if you look at that, uh, when you look at a car that, is a 1600 um you'd basically be able to get a, a, a second-hand car anywhere from about eight grand to about 15 grand is going to at least get you a car um yeah. it's not going to be a front runner uh but it's going to get you into the sport get you there and um and get you on the track if you want something that's a little bit more competitive you're probably then looking between 15 to to 30 grand somewhere in that range um and then the the top of the line cars the guys that are um constantly on the podium and at the front end those top end cars they're probably somewhere between 30 to 40 maybe forty five thousand dollars. yeah okay interesting so so there's a bit of a range there obviously and it does depend um 
on what class you're going to run because I assume the 1200 cars are a little bit cheaper, yeah? Or Yeah, the 1200s are a little bit cheaper. Um, some of the historics are actually uh, in the upper level of the the teens for thousands of dollars, so that the 15,000 to 20,000 range, just because they come with a fair bit of heritage. There's a, a number of um, cars that have had some pretty uh, iconic drivers in them in the past. Um, back in the when the category was uh, early on in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, and so those cars with heritage obviously demand a bit more money just purely because of the yeah, the the collectability and also the the history that that car has with the type of drivers that it's had or, or what it's achieved in the past. Yeah. The more modern 1200s, um, so something around, say, the 1990s, you might be able to pick up something uh, anywhere from about maybe six to $12,000 for a 1200, um, depending on what, what uh, condition it's in um, and, and how it's been running. Some... Some Formula Vs are being found at the moment because they've been sitting in uh, someone's garage for the last 10 years and they haven't seen the light of day and, and others are being sold because they've been run for a couple of seasons and the, and the driver just wants to move on or, or upgrade to something different. Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning. Um, I think actually you said this to me when we were talking about doing this podcast once before on Discord is that what people have got to take into account when you buy a car is, um, you know, is, is if that car is like cheap, then obviously it probably needs a bit of work. And then are you the type of person that, um, you know, has the ability to develop that car and, you know, find out all its weaknesses and go out there and race a few times and break a few things and find out, well, okay, that's fucked. We've got to change that, blah, 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 you know. And uh, I think you mentioned that to me before, and I think it's worth yeah, mentioning that, that people need to take that into account and you know if you don't have the ability to do that you might be better off you know saving up a little bit longer and getting something slightly better equipment yeah certainly there's there's cars for sale at the moment that are sort of in parts um so all the parts are there but you've got to put it back together um yeah. and so you you generally will find they will come across a little bit cheaper than than a fully um complete car for one of a different way of explaining it but the advantage in getting a fully complete car that that might have uh run all last year and has done 10 10 events in the last two years or, or something like that is that you you know the car is actually running um you could basically rock up to the track put it on the track and away you go uh, whereas if you go for something yeah. that may have sat around in a shed for five years or, or yeah. a bit longer and you're then looking at, okay, it's cheaper and I can I can get the the initial capital is less, you might actually find that you spend more money in the long run because you're then having to iron out all the bugs that have and the cobwebs that have been um, not known because the car wasn't actually being used in the previous yeah. few years and how people can tell is exactly what you just said <clears throat> pardon me if you go to buy a car um just ask them when was the last time it's raced and you know if someone's been running a regular program with it it's probably a good chance it's probably not a bad little car but yeah if it's been sitting around you know and look as someone who's bought bought and sold a lot of race cars in my years i my advice would be 
wait a little bit longer and save up and get the best equipment you can because it comes down to ongoing issues as well and like when you said before 30 40 45k for a car might sound like a lot but actually i'll explain in the end with this car it's actually you know for what you get out of it it's not really and you've got to remember that once you spend that money that's pretty much it you know like you don't have to develop too much it's just more just ongoing costs and you know i've done both ends bought cheap shit and good shit and yeah my advice would be like get the best equipment you can but you know not everyone's budget allows that so anyway um so moving on to motors now so um yeah what what's the go with motors if someone's getting a car as a roller and they're looking for a motor what do motors go for and the other thing i'd like to ask you about motors too now when i did the one with gordon on xls he made a really good point of saying now a lot of people in queensland when they get the motors um and they go to get them rebuilt they'll take them to like a really good reputable engine builder right but the only problem with those guys is they're not building the race engines that are winning the races on sunday afternoon and there's you know guys that are just building hyundai xl race winning engines and his advice was you know there's people like spending big money on rebuilds and getting nowhere kind of thing so yeah could you tell us a bit about the a bit about motors yeah so it doesn't matter if you run the 1600 or the 1200 the motors and the gearboxes have to be what we call sealed and so basically it's a control formula uh you can rebuild an engine yourself if you want, but you have to take it to one of the authorized members of the Formula V Association who can seal the engine or the gearbox after the rebuild. And what they do is check uh, certain parameters are within the regulations. Uh, this is to try and stop costs running away with people chasing engine performance and putting the latest and greatest components into their engine and, and therefore having... Um, faster engines at the sacrifice of good competition uh, because some other drivers might not be able to afford all those uh, components. So the motor in the 1200 or the 1600 category is based off the Type 1 uh, 1200 or 1600 Volkswagen engine. So basically the engine out of a uh, Herbie Beetle um, and the same with the gearbox. Uh, the one difference being that we actually reverse the orientation. So we strip out the gearbox and we have to put um, four forward gears in and, and, and one reverse gear as opposed to if we ran it standard, it would all be going backwards. Uh, but otherwise, it's, it's air-cooled. Uh, it's a total loss system, so we don't run an alternator or a generator. We actually just charge the batteries on battery charges in between events uh, or in between races at the track. Um, yeah. So it it's a very simple engine to uh, maintain and to, to rock up to the track and, and run with. Um, but, uh, again, it's going to depend on your mechanical knowledge as to how much help you may need in, in your, your preparation leading into the event or at the event. And the one thing I've found with the Formula V community is that it's it's very welcoming. It's very much a family-type feel. If, if you're struggling at the track on the weekend and you've broken apart or um, for some reason the engine's running rough, uh, guys who might be your, your arch rival out there on the track 
are still going to help you in the pits try to get the uh, resolution to the problem so that you can go out and race. Um, there, it, there's not that sense of, oh, just because we race against each other, I'm not going to share um, my tools or my knowledge because a lot of the time people coming into the sport have never um, worked with an air-cooled engine before or, or, or never really uh, even been at a race meet before. We get some people start Formula V is the first time they've ever bought a, a race car. Yeah. Uh, so getting through all the ins and outs of a race weekend um, and what sort of spares you should take and those sort of things, until you build up your own spares portfolio, uh, there's plenty of people around that are willing to to lend you a spare part if it means you can get back out on the track and keep racing that weekend, and that that that's what I think is a really good part to the the category. Yeah, well, that's it, yeah, it is. It's it's club racing kind of at its purest, really, which is um, it's good to hear that it's a good scene like that. So, what are the uh, what do the motors go for if you have to buy one? Uh, I haven't actually had to buy one, but. Um, <laughs> You know, ball just ball. Once, yeah, it, it it's going to depend on if it's just been freshly rebuilt or or not. But probably around somewhere between four to to eight thousand dollars for a, a motor. Yeah. Um, well, how long? How long do they last? Like, um, there's obviously because air cooled, man, that still spins me out, eh? So no radiator. Yeah, like you said, very simple system. Um, which yeah. Be, um, attractive, but yeah. So how long do they last? Well, I mean, the top guys are probably doing a refresh of their engine um, maybe once a season or, or twice a season. That's um, top, top end, eh? Yeah. That's top end, yeah. Not not a full strip yeah. down, but just a top end refresh. Um, what's, that, what's that cost? Uh, I guess it depends on who you go through. It's probably going to be around maybe two to $4,000, depending on what they find That's wrong on the inside. Um my actual engine at the moment, uh, it was last sealed back in 2015. Um, it then did a number of events and it sat dormant for about three years before I ended up purchasing the, the car. Um, and I ran it all of 2021 and 2022. Um, and I... It definitely is in need of a top-end refresh again, but it still runs. Yes, I'm down on a little bit of um, power, and I can notice that when I'm going down the straight alongside other cars. Um, but, again, that comes down to, I guess, how competitive you want to be. If you really want to be fighting for the podiums, then you're going to well, be... probably not really going to affect your overall, is it, that much? Uh, it, it, it does to a certain degree. Um, just purely because they're they're low powered cars, so oh, yeah, small even power, just one horsepower difference is yeah. going to make it make a bit of a difference down the straight. If you're next yeah. to someone who you identically race with in the sense of ability and speed, uh, if you're down a couple of horsepower on them, they're going to actually pull away from you uh, over time, over the course of the whole race. But yeah. um, so obviously you you're, doing, you're doing a top end say once a year and then what about bottom end and the rest of it so every couple of years or every every couple of years i'd i'd say like i said i haven't quite got to that point with my uh yeah. my engines yet um 
but a, a top end refresh yeah, would fine. be yeah a top end refresh is somewhere between sort of two and four thousand dollars i guess depending on who you who you use um and what may need to be replaced uh and then a full uh engine rebuild is probably up around uh six plus depend again depending on what you're replacing and what you're yeah. what you're um getting as new parts as opposed to secondhand parts and things like that some people might be mechanical too they might be able to do a lot of it themselves so yeah that's interesting and that's that's something you have to factor in when yeah, sure. i purchased our car um i'm six foot four almost six foot five so i'm pretty much right on the height limit for being able to fit in these things um and so when we looked at multiple cars when i was looking to purchase one we finally found one that we sort of said okay yes it's it's achievable we can we're gonna have to modify things but it, we can do that and what we had to do was move the pedal box right as far forward as we could we had to move the seat as far back as we could um and some of those things moving the seats relatively easy but moving the pedal box meant um Oh, I can imagine. Like angle grinding the old one out, welding the new one in, then building new um, push rods for the brakes into the cali- into the um, uh, into the uh, calipers, and then also um, re-welding it all back in and making it secure. Um, yeah. Little things like building brackets or um, making adjustments if you don't. If you're not mechanically minded straight up or you don't have the ability in your garage or or storage of where you keep the car to do it, then obviously that's going to add to your overall cost because you're going to have to subcontract that out to guys who can do it. Um, that's where it pays. Like if you buy a better car at the start, you kind of skip all that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, one of the, the big advantages we had is is Dad and I have been in motorsport for, for many years. We've rebuilt um, British sports cars uh, a couple of times um, and Dad's got in his garage at home a, a metalwork lathe. So we're able to uh, machine up bits and pieces as, as we need and and we can um, do a oh, bit of... A huge difference, yeah. Yeah, do a bit of R&D and trial and error, and it's not costing us every time we um, make a small change or or try to make a a slight engineering improvement to the car. Yeah, cool. All good info, man. So, all right, moving on, let's uh, move on to tyres. So um, tell me a bit about them. What do they cost a set and how long roughly are you getting? I assume that's a control tyre as well. It is a control tyre. The... Fronts are a slightly thinner size to the rears. So when you buy uh, your tyres, you generally buy a set um, and they're $960 uh, for the set fitted um, and you can either do that at the track or, or get it done the weeks leading into the into the race if you take them to one of the um, authorised uh, sellers for the tyres. We run a Dunlop uh, control tire. The category has gone through a number of changes over the over the years, from Dunlop to Yokohama and um, other tire brands. But we're now back with Dunlop. And what are they? Um, how long do they last? They like probably again. They probably last someone at the pointy end of the field 
a lot less than they last myself. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, I've, been, I've been saying that, and especially when it comes to carding, that's a really important yeah. factor. And it was the same. For, it was just the, say your club racer, say mid. Yeah. So, so as well. Yeah. So um, I tend to get four race weekends out of a set of tyres. Um, and that fourth weekend, you'll definitely notice that they're, they're not so good anymore. Um, you probably start to notice it in the third weekend, but, um, again, it's, it's something that I accept that I'm not necessarily, um, going to be throwing tires at every event, but I'll, I will select the events where I try to time my tire purchase so that I have new tires for a certain event where I want to try and yes. do do better at and therefore have that slight advantage of a fresh set of tyres. Yeah, another good uh, point um, about managing tyres, I'll just bump in there real quick, um, what we do. So we have, once they get to a certain section, then we have practice tyres. So because when you go and race on a day, um, you know, you got warm-up, oh, you normally practice sessions and stuff like that. So we never use our race tyres for them, you know. Because precisely, yeah. Because otherwise will shorten the length of your race tyre, whereas if we run the practice tires and then we yes. just switch over. So we only run the race rubber on the, you know, during the race. Yes. And we find yeah. You can get like an extra meeting kind of out of them. Yeah. And, and, and that's certainly how I run my tire management as well. I have the race tire. Uh, I then have the practice tire. And when the race tire uh, becomes deteriorated and I, I I'm going to get a new set, the practice tires, come off the race tires go on those rims the new ones and then the the race tire set that i was racing with then becomes my practice set um and and the guys we keep track of everything so we we label the sets uh alphabetically um we keep track of how many laps we've done um the tire pressures uh the tire temperatures um and uh, one of the, the big things with Formula V, and it probably is very much the same with your go-karts, is your tyre pressures can um, be one of those uh, oh, yeah. advantages or disadvantages depending on what tyre pressure you run. Um, and so it's all a very secret. Uh, that's probably about the one thing that no one will share is their tyre pressures. I'm glad you said that because I'm going to talk a bit about the karting podcast, a bit about this, but, yeah, there's one thing in... I'll say it now since you brought it up. I tell people, right, first of all, don't ever ask anyone what they're running. And if anybody does tell you or you do ask, don't believe them. (laughs) People ask me, right, I lie, (laughs) right? So what you do is, and look, I'll I'll touch on it briefly now, but, yeah, what you said, advice for people out there, write everything down. So my, um, my, my mate, my mechanical engineer, so he takes tire you know, uh, temperature, hot, cold, as soon as I come in the grid and he does middle, outside, wheel, all that. Anyway, it took us 12 months of all different weather conditions for him basically to map the tyre. So we know he can just look at it now, like say it's 24 degrees, he just knows, okay, 24 degrees, we run, we run 12 PSI or whatever it is. So, yeah, yeah, it's important for people to write all that down and to get to know the tyre. And to map it all out so that whatever you can rock up on a race day, whatever the temperature is, you just look in your book. And, yeah, it's an important uh, point to make. And so, yeah. it's it's something to realise that people might guide you in the right direction. But, again, yeah. it's such a personal thing because your driving style 
might not suit the tire pressure, yeah. and uh, look, the, the front to rear tire pressures that someone else uses. And they might tell you, right? But here's the thing about that: I tell people, don't get distracted in what other people are doing because what you just said, it might not work for you. You got to figure out what works for you. You know, don't get in. Yeah, don't get too involved in what other people are doing. That's my advice there. <laughs> But yeah, and so the front running guys are they like sort of swapping out new tires every time they race, pretty much, or just? Big I running? wouldn't say every time they race, but I think, and again, I, I, I'm not 100 percent sure. I'm sort of talking through observation. I'd say they're probably on a new set of tires every two rounds. They might be doing more than that, but obviously at a race meet, you tend to to be so focused on yourself, you're not just watching <laughs> some of the front yeah, guys yeah, and, and what yeah, set and of tires they're on. Um, but yeah, I would so. I would say that they're probably changing them a lot, probably twice as quick as someone mid-pack would be. So I'd say yeah. two rounds. They're probably a couple of sets a year, really, you're looking at. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas I can get through a, a whole season with two, maybe three sets, depending on how many events I do. Yeah, so one for like your club runs, one for like maybe a big event, and then one for state or national titles or something. Yeah, if you go to a round where you've got uh, like a national or the or the national um, challenge, which is a one weekend winner takes all uh, format for the Formula V, uh, you'd probably go there, and you'd, there'd be no point rocking up there and just using old tires. You'd definitely buy yourself a set to to go to that sort of meeting. Yeah. And so um, what about, um, so transport, obviously you need a car trailer to transport them, but I'm thinking, like, how long are they overall? They're not an overly big car, are they? No, they're, they're, they're not. Um, I don't have the figures in front of me right now, but I think nose to tail might only be uh, just over 2.5 yeah, okay. metres. It's, it, it's not... going to be yeah, over 3 metres, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, it's... Um, the trailer, the wheelbase, uh, the wheelbase. I think off the top of my head, without looking at the regs, is twenty one hundred uh, millimeters, so two point one meters wheelbase. And then you've got obviously a nose cone out the front and a bit of exhaust out the back. Yeah. Um, so they're they're not much longer than that. So you need a trailer or some kind of truck, but not too bad, really. Like they're not too big. Yeah. Look, and again, that comes down to. Use- what your your initial capital is and, and, and what sort of storage options you have because some guys have full boxed-in trailers um, and they just drive the car up into the trailer and then when they get home, it just stays in the trailer because they've got nowhere else to store it. Yeah. Um, myself, I've just got a tilter trailer, which uh, is a Australian-made um, uh, trailer out of uh, Queensland that, uh, basically has a latch at the front and it, it rocks around the axle, a single axle, um, and we just winch the car up onto it and it it, um, yeah. it uh, rocks back to the flat position and that way you don't have ramps, you don't have to worry about any yeah. any superfluous uh, equipment. Um, it does mean that it's an open trailer, which means we then need a ute to take all the spares and stuff. We can't throw them in the trailer as such. Okay. Yeah. Um, one of the guys in... Um, New South Wales has just converted a box trailer. He built some ramps and the car just goes up into a box trailer and he just takes the nose cone off and puts it in the back of his um, station wagon when he's driving to and from events. Yeah, cool. All right, and um, you mentioned their spares. So what sort of stuff um, 
just the general, what are you carrying to a meeting? So a standard uh, meeting, we'll go with um, obviously the, the second set of rims with, with tyres on them. Yeah. Uh, we then take uh, a box of consumables, which is like oil and um, grease and, and uh, cleaning uh, products like um, the Molecule uh, car cleaner and stuff like that. Um, so we've got those sort of consumables. Uh, we've built up over a bit of time a um, quick carry case with a range of nuts, bolts, washers that cover pretty much all the sizes that we need just so we've got some spares in case. Um, the one disadvantage is that Half the car is Imperial, half the car is metric. So that's oh. that's a bit of an annoyance. And Dad oh, and I are slowly man. working our way through trying to standardise <laughs> everything. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we carry those. We've got a rattle gun. Now, you don't need a rattle gun. It's a bit over the top, I guess. You could just use a, a, a wheel uh, wrench to undo your, your wheel nuts to change tyres. But the rattle gun makes it a hell of a lot quicker. Um, and you can pick them up relatively cheap, or if you've yeah. if you've already got if you're already part of the Makita or the Ryobi One or the Dewalt battery uh, ecosystem, you can get a rattle gun, just the skin, and your batteries are going to work on them already. Yeah, um, we carry a small Ryobi One compressor so that we don't have to worry about starting up a big air compressor with a generator to pump tires up if we need to add some air yeah, good point yep um we carry then a box of um spares that like a a control arm a uh like the steering arms suspension arms we've basically got one of each for each corner of the car yep um just in case uh i mean i've had a that's the most yeah, common damage isn't it yeah yeah, I, I, I've been quite lucky. I actually had an incident in 2021 with another driver and, and my rear right touched his front left and that sort of shot me up into a nose-down sort of attitude with the, the rear wheels, the, the at least the height of the wheels, high up in the sky. And when it came back down, um, it landed pretty solid but it didn't break anything, so we got away with it. But I've seen other cars where they only just touch front wheels and it bends all their steering. So, um, again, that's a, it's a good, good, uh, good experience to steer clear of is rubbing wheels when you're in an open wheeler. Uh, but we carry a, basically some spare parts like that. Um, I've got uh, spare accelerator cables um, and... And zip ties and tech screws and Zeus fasters and, and just all that little stuff. And then we carry a couple of things like a rear gearbox housing, a, a spare muffler, um, and a few of the other things that might be required if it's a little bit more of a major fix. Um, but we don't carry a whole spare gearbox or a whole spare engine. Some of the the other guys do because in their in their trucks or in their um, enclosed trailers, they've got a, a full rear end or a full front end on the Volkswagen H-beam suspension 
just ready to to bolt on, bolt off. Yeah, because they can. Yeah, I was going to say with the H pattern, they can do that, eh? Yeah, that the H beam just bolts onto the front of your your chassis. Um, so they'll have it all set up, ready to go. Um, and all they do is unbolt the damaged one if they've had damage, and they bolt yeah. the other one on. It might mean that they miss uh, one of the races in the afternoon of the the day, but they can be done overnight and they're back racing the next the next day i've seen guys replace two gearboxes in one event um just to keep the car getting out there to try and circulate and and i guess get some points or at least make the most of their entry fee by getting some track time oh it's a huge huge advantage and the other thing is you know no one wants to like hit something and then spend weeks in the shed rebuilding the front end you know the fact you can bolt it on and off makes a big difference you know so, um, all right, well, so moving on, uh, so what other just sort of general ongoing costs are there? Anything that you can think of? Um, and the other thing is to touch on maybe is also as well as entry fees. What, yep. So ongoing costs, uh, generally your fuel, your oil, um, brake fluid, that sort of thing, Uh I just keep an eye out when Super Cheap or Autobahn have a seventy percent or fifty percent off sale, and I just stock up on the the types of start of oh, consumables we use. Um, so you've got that. I generally change oil every two events, um, and uh, change a, an oil filter probably about the same, maybe every three or four events. It just depends, um, but. I re- remember once long ago being told by a aircraft engineer that oil is the cheapest part <laughs> to your engine. Yeah. Um, and so if it means replacing oil that maybe didn't necessarily have to be replaced, but you have a good preventative maintenance schedule to just every event or every second event replace your oil, um, then that's going a long way to looking after it or stopping it from getting to a point where you probably should have replaced it last event, um, but you're still running on it. Yeah. So there's those sort of costs. Um, Fuel, it's actually quite a a fuel-efficient engine in the sense of it it doesn't doesn't run through much fuel compared to other cars that you could have on the track. I basically go uh, to an event and might use somewhere around um, one and a half to two litres a, a lap at, at pace, um, depending on what track it is and those sort of things. Uh, so maybe may, maybe 30 litres of fuel for the whole weekend um, yeah, of competing and maybe, maybe 10 litres on practice or, or 15 litres practice, depending on how many practice sessions I go out for. Uh, I used to I used to jump out and go to every practice session on the Friday and get out and just ra- go round and round and round. And now we've got a little bit more strategic about how we do it. And if I if I not I'm not rushing to get out to a practice. So if I miss one practice session, there's always another one in an hour's time. So yeah. um, I tend not to do as much practice as I used to, um, mainly because we're just trying to make improvements and and figure out how to make the car better as opposed to just doing laps. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so entry fees? 
Entry fees are about four hundred and fifty dollars, um, and that's for a state round um, in New South Wales. Obviously, different states will will vary, but it's around that sort of amount of money. If you're going to go to somewhere like Sydney Motorsport Park, um, it's free to park up on the apron, up on the skid pan, and guys have their tents come out the side or their canopies come out the side of their trailers or they set up a gazebo and stuff. Um, generally, because Dad and I have the open trailer and we, we don't have that facility, we, um, we always purchase a garage. And so the garage is about 320 bucks for the weekend, but you can fit three Formula Vs in it. So we'll share that cost. So there's about $100, $110 on top of my entry fee just for the garage. Uh, but the garage comes in quite handy when it's a wet event. Uh, <laughs> you're right there in pit lane, sheltered. Yeah. And then obviously annually you've got your Motorsport Australia license. Um, I only renewed mine a couple of weeks ago and I, it's something ridiculous, like two hundred and eighty dollars or something. But oh, really? Uh, Man, that's cheaper than carts. <laughs> I, just, I just renewed my carding, and that's like pretty sure it's like three sixty, three fifty. Yeah, okay. Um, I could be wrong, but yeah. Uh, but you'll have that, and then um, obviously your initial capital for when you first get into the sport is going to be all your apparel. Um, yeah, yeah, of course, and. Yeah. The that can make it look quite expensive because you can spend a thousand bucks or you could spend six thousand dollars. Um, now you don't necessarily need the top of the line driving boots and driving gloves and all that sort of stuff when you're first starting out. But the one thing I was told early on when I started motorsport, and I always tell others when they're getting into it, is is buy the most expensive helmet you can afford yeah because that the more expensive the helmet is um it's generally more expensive because it's made of more advanced materials so you get into your kevlars and your carbon fiber as opposed to your fiberglass and therefore it's actually lighter and although it might not seem like there's a difference between 500 grams when you're just holding it in the shop when you're in the race car and you're you're wearing it on your head and you're experiencing g-force that extra 500 grams is making a big difference on how it reacts on your neck and then obviously the safety aspect the safety aspect then is that if you're in an accident and you're rolling over or your your sudden stops and that sort of thing that's just exponentially worse the more weight that is involved so always look at getting the the best helmet you can for the the price that you're able to spend um and obviously there's sorry uh, go are you guys running a hans device yes it's uh it's a requirement to run a hands device i don't run the hands uh device as you might know when you watch formula one the one that comes over their shoulders and sits over the front of their chest i run um what's called a hybrid and it's basically uh you'll see guys a lot of uh guys in uh rallying do it because it makes it easier to get in and out of the car um and they are becoming a bit more popular i've seen a couple of v8 supercar guys uh wearing them as well and they're a bit more like a 
you wear sort of a harness around your chest and the um, the actual hands device aspect is just sitting on your shoulders. It doesn't come down over your chest um, at, to uh, spread that load. And I find that much better, much more comfortable in the Formula V yeah, as well. It can be tricky. It's a good point, yeah, because I remember when I was running midgets getting in, so what I, I could never get in with the hands on. So what I would do is I'd get in, take this because you obviously take the steering wheel off and then put my head right forward and then put the hands on yeah. and then just sit back. That was the only way I could get in and out. But yeah, yeah. good points. And so um, is there any other any other sort of like, you know, basic tips or trips or costs that you can think of? I that, guess the uh, only other costs uh, that I haven't mentioned is accommodation or, or transport to and oh, from yeah. events. So um, we were running in New South Wales and my mum and dad live in Canberra. So we'd go to Wakefield Park, which is in Goulburn. Um, so we'd never get accommodation when we were at Wakefield Park. We'd just drive home each night and drive up the next morning. But then if we went to Sydney to compete at Eastern Creek or Sydney Motorsport Park, um, we'd always get accommodation. So you've got to factor in that yes. uh, to your cost, depending on how many rounds of the year might be at somewhere not close to where you live. So um, say if you're living in Queensland in, in Brisbane, you might be able to get to Lakeside and QR uh, all the time. But when you go to Morgan Park out at Warwick, you're going to need accommodation. Um, so that's going to factor into your budget differently to yeah. someone else who might live in the Sunshine Coast who actually has to get accommodation when they come down to any one of those three events because they're yeah. too far away from home to drive home of an evening. Yeah, it's a good point. You've got to factor that into your budget. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, well, I think that's pretty much it. But one thing I sort of did want to, um, sort of before we wrap up, say about the Vs, like... Um, so what do you reckon ballpark your uh, budget is for uh, for a year? Just sort of uh, with with no major damage. Yeah. And looking at uh, six rounds of racing a year, I was budgeting seven and a half to eight thousand dollars. So wow. basically, but basically a thousand dollars a round, just because I had Pretty to organize transport and accommodation and factoring in some consumables and then um looking at yeah that 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 includes going out with everyone on the saturday night for dinner um all that's factored into my spreadsheet like i I run a spreadsheet where i i put all the the costs in i've been um tracking whenever i go and get the fuel uh not only for the race car but also the diesel that goes in the the ute so I track it all so I can factor it all out so that I can start to project better and see whether or not um, I can fit in another round a year or go somewhere or go to another event that might be interstate um, to broaden my my experience of racing them. Um, so this year, for example, I'm, I know already just due to work commitments, I won't be able to make every round of the New South Wales Championship. Um, so I'm actually going to look at, instead of focusing on just New South Wales, I'm going to look at going to places like Morgan Park and getting down to Phillip Island um, and experiencing some of the other tracks that I haven't been to before, which probably overall means less racing, but better racing because I'm getting to do some tracks that I haven't done before and it's a new challenge and, and 
racing against guys that you don't normally race against because you're in a different state. Well, the other thing that you're forgetting there, which actually was my final point, which I wanted to make about the Vs, was just that. You timed it perfectly, man, because um, I wanted to say, like, yeah, that while they're expensive to... Well, not expensive, but, you know, it'll cost you 15, 20, 30 or whatever to get set up. But then once you set up, the ongoing costs actually pretty cheap. And considering, you got to remember, right, you're racing open-wheel cockpit in a car that weighs barely a few hundred kilos, like right on with your asses on the ground, like you don't yeah. get much better experience. And what you just said, you get to go to places like Phillip Island and Bathurst. And a lot of people don't realise, right, that a lot of these other entry-level motorsports don't have access to those kinds of tracks. But because Formula V is considered like, you know, the sort of the pathway and the entryway, for some reason I noticed like they always get included on the card for good events. And what you said, you know, like it's for that kind of money to be able to go and like race those tracks, it's like, it's crazy really. Yeah, and and you touched on it just then. The car weighs, well, it has to weigh at least 500 kilos when it crosses the scales at the end of a race. Um, if you get taken to scrutineering. So it's 500 kilos. It gets upwards of 180 kilometers an hour. And when you're nose to tail with three or four other cars through turn one at Sydney Motorsport Park at 180, 190 kilometers an hour, um, you could basically feel like you're in a Formula One anyway because it's it's a pretty intense experience. It's it's a a sensory overload um, the first few times you do it. Uh, and it never, never fails to put a big smile on my face under the helmet uh, when I'm racing, even if things aren't going 100% uh, smoothly or, or <laughs> you're, uh, you're a little bit off the pace. The big advantage with Formula V is if you're not in the front pack, it doesn't matter because the second, third and fourth pack, there's always battle groups going on um, and there's always someone you're, you're racing against. Well, man, I think you summed it up perfectly. I think that's the spot to wrap it up. I can't do better than that. <laughs> so thanks for coming on, man, and having a chat to us about Visa. I appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Cheers, mate. All right. Thank you. By being a racing driver means you are racing with other people. And if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you're no longer a racing driver.